Hello fellow teachers and welcome to Teaching with Power. I'm Ben Wilcox and this week we'll be studying Moroni chapters 7 through 9. And I wanted to start out this week by saying thank you to you as my listeners. This past week we've been encouraged by our prophet to flood the internet with gratitude. Well I wanted to say that I'm grateful for you. You make the time and effort that goes into creating these lessons worthwhile and meaningful to me. I'm grateful for people like you who, instead of watching funny cat videos or sports highlights, you spend your valuable time with me learning more about the scriptures. I'm so grateful that I have an audience of dedicated disciples of Christ to share my thoughts and feelings and testimony with of God's sacred word. I'm grateful for the scriptures, and I love them deeply. And I'm grateful for this platform that allows me to share that testimony with you. Now, this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching with Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. Well, as a reminder, if you're interested in lesson plans, PowerPoint slides, or the handouts that I make, go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to all of those resources. All right, my friends, let's dig deep. You can begin this lesson by talking about collections, and hopefully you have a collection of something that you could bring in as an object lesson to share with your class. You could also ask them to share some of the things that they collect and what the most prized objects in their collections are. And for me, when I was younger, I collected a number of different things. I had a coin collection, a rock collection, a Lego collection, a fossil collection, and a soda pop can collection. Collecting can be a really enjoyable hobby. There's just something fun and challenging about gathering up all the different variations of one specific kind of thing and then putting them out on display. The goal of the collector is to complete the collection as much as is possible. In my coin collection, I really focused on pennies. They have these wonderful little coin collector booklets that provides spaces for every type of penny that exists placed in chronological order. And you take the pennies and you push them into the little holes and they hold the pennies in place. I remember going to the bank and exchanging dollar bills for rolls of pennies and then eagerly searching through my pile looking for new pennies that I could fill in the gaps of my collection with. I remember how excited I'd get when I'd find a new penny that I didn't have yet and how satisfying it was to push those into place. Well, after some time, all the holes for the more recently minted pennies were filled. So I began to focus on older and older pennies. I got into collecting what are called Indian head pennies, and those were definitely much harder to find. For those, I had to work and save up my money, and then go down to the coin shop and purchase them one by one, And that certainly took some more diligent searching to find those. Well, today we're going to talk about a different kind of collection, a Christian qualities collection, a collection of discipleship. Moroni chapter 7 presents us with an extraordinary collection of the qualities and characteristics of a disciple of Christ. Our goal today is to fill them in. I'm going to give you a handout that is reminiscent of those coin-collecting booklets that I once had, and we'll spend the rest of our time today collecting Christian qualities. And by the conclusion of the lesson, you'll have a display of deep discipleship. Mormon, 
who Moroni is quoting in this chapter, see verse 1, isn't going to use the term disciple, though, to describe the followers of Christ. He uses a number of other fantastic descriptive phrases instead. So we're going to start out easy here by first collecting those Christian captions. So see if you can find them here. I've given you the first letter of every word as a clue, and now you just need to fill in the collection by writing in the terms in the provided spaces of this first section. And if you took the time to do that, here's the answers. In 7.3, the peaceable followers of Christ. Verse 19, a child of Christ. Verse 26, the sons of God. And we could include the title daughters of God here as well. Verse 39, the people of his church. And then verse 48, true followers of his son. Now those are some great titles, aren't they? I want to be a peaceable follower of Christ, a son or daughter of God, a a true follower of his son. But how do I become those things? Well, I need to develop Christian qualities. Now let's put our efforts into collecting those. For these, I'll give you the sections and where you can find these qualities. And as a teacher, you may want to read and walk your class through these sections and allow them to answer some of the discussion questions as you go along. And hopefully, that'll leave you with enough time to do a personal application activity. Sometimes I like to guide my students a little more through the scriptures and then give them some more personal, reflective time to apply what we've just learned in the scriptures. And this chapter seems to be a good place to do that. So we're going to start in chapter 7, verse 4, the first quality. And now, my brethren, I judge these things of you because of your peaceable walk with the children of men. So what does a peaceable follower of Christ do? They walk peaceably with the children of men. And what do you think it means to walk peaceably with other people? Christ once taught us that blessed are the peacemakers. And I believe that means more than just breaking up fights. It's being the type of person that makes or creates peace in the lives of others. We can make peace by giving sincere compliments. We can make peace by mourning with those that mourn. We can make peace by sharing the gift of the restored gospel to all that we can. We can make peace by being kind, loving, long-suffering, and patient, especially with those that are closest to us. So, peaceable followers of Christ walk peaceably with the children of men. Verses 5 through 11. I won't read the entire text here, but I'll point out what I see. What does a peaceable follower of Christ do here? They do good works, but they do them in a certain way, with real intent. They don't do them grudgingly. So apparently it is possible to do the right things and not have them accepted by God. Christ taught his disciples not to do good works to be seen of men. And in addition here, Mormon instructs us that we shouldn't do good works without real intent, or sincerity, or pure motives. If I grudgingly attend my church meetings, if I grudgingly say my prayers or read my scriptures, it's not going to profit me much. It's like when you were a kid and your mother forced your sibling to say sorry to you, and they did. 
it probably meant very little to you because it was done grudgingly. Well, it's the same with God. Now, I don't think that Mormon is saying that if you struggle with your desire to do a good thing, then you just shouldn't do it at all. I still think it's better to do a good thing without an intense desire than it is not to do it at all. Often I find that when I push past the initial resistance that my natural man puts up, then the saint within me, the spirit within me, gains strength, and my desire increases, and I begin to feel the real intent starting to well up inside me. I think the problem comes when I do good works grudgingly, or solely out of a sense of social pressure. When I complain all the way through, and I feed my natural man with indignation, self-pity, and resistance. Instead, we should seek to do those good works with real intent. So, the peaceable follower of Christ does good works with real intent. Verses 12 through 19. I would like to read this full section with you here. It holds what I feel to be one of the most important ideas of the entire chapter, and I'd like to spend some extra time here. Mormon is going to teach us how peaceable followers of Christ discover truth. Wherefore, all things which are good cometh of God, and that which is evil cometh of the devil. For the devil is an enemy unto God, and fighteth against him continually, and inviteth and enticeth to sin, and to do that which is evil continually. But behold, that which is of God inviteth and enticeth to do good continually. Wherefore, everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good, and to love God, and to serve him, is inspired of God. Wherefore, take heed, my beloved brethren, that ye do not judge that which is evil to be of God, or that which is good and of God to be of the devil. For behold, my brethren, it is given unto you to judge, that ye may know good from evil. And the way to judge is as plain, that ye may know with a perfect knowledge, as the daylight is from the dark night. For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man, that he may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge. For everything which inviteth to do good, and to persuade to believe in Christ, is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore, ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. But whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil, and believe not in Christ, and deny him, and serve not God, then ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. For after this manner doth the devil work. For he persuadeth no man to do good. No, not one. Neither do his angels, neither do they who subject themselves unto him. And now, my brethren, seeing that ye know the light by which ye may judge, which light is the light of Christ, see that ye do not judge wrongfully. For with that same judgment which ye judge, ye shall also be judged. Wherefore, I beseech you, brethren, that ye should search diligently in the light of Christ, that ye may know good from evil. And if ye will lay hold upon every good thing, and condemn it not, ye certainly will be a child of Christ. Mormon has just taught us how we can come to the point where we know with a perfect knowledge if something is of God. And in the modern day church, we might call it gaining a testimony. 
we're accustomed in this church to hearing and saying things like, I know this church is true. I know the Book of Mormon is true. I know Joseph Smith was a true prophet. Well, how does one arrive at that point? I think we're all very familiar with the formula that Moroni gives us, described in chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, which gives us a very effective way of discovering truth and refers specifically to gaining a testimony of the Book of Mormon. But it can be applied to any search for truth. Let's take a look at that formula here instead of next week, since there's plenty of material in Moroni 10 for us to digest next time. Moroni exhorts us to read these things, remember God's mercy to his children, and ponder them in our hearts. Then we ask God if these things are true. But we need to ask in a certain way. We don't ask casually. We don't ask with a doubting heart, but with a sincere heart. And again, one of Moroni's favorite phrases, with real intent, having faith in Christ. And then the promise, by the power of the Holy Ghost, God will manifest the truth of it unto us. He then reminds us that this formula can work for all inquiries into truth. By the power of the Holy Ghost, we may know the truth of all things. This is a critical method for acquiring spiritual knowledge. God communicates with man and will indicate truth when we seek it. And by the way, I don't think that this process is something that we just do at the end of our study of the Book of Mormon. You know, you read the entire text, and then when you're done, it all crescendos into this amazing spiritual experience at the end of your scripture study journey. It can and does happen that way for some. But hopefully, we've been pondering and remembering and asking and demonstrating faith all throughout our study. That manifestation of truth can come at any point in our experience. I know that at times in my personal search for truth, that answers to my prayers have come in that very way. I've prayed for knowledge, inspiration, and confirmation, and God has answered those prayers through the power of the Holy Ghost by touching my thoughts and feelings with its influence. That, though, is one way of gaining a witness of the truth. But it isn't the way or the only way. We tend to focus on that one, especially when it comes to gaining a testimony of the Book of Mormon. But we may forget that the Book of Moroni offers us another formula as well. We have Mormon's way here in chapter 7. What is that way? Simply put, I use my judgment. In this formula, from verse 12 and 13, I begin the process by keeping a very important truth in mind that things of God are good, and they are the kind of things that, really great words here, invite and entice me to do good, and to love God and to serve Him. When I discover those kinds of things, I can come to a firm conclusion, or a perfect knowledge, that they are inspired of God. They're true. I'll have a testimony of those things then. But then verse 14 gives us a warning. Don't judge these good things to be of the devil. Well, that may produce some anxiety in us. I mean, what if I make a mistake and I judge wrongly? Sensing that, Mormon assures us in verse 15 that 
it is given unto us the way to judge, to know good from evil. And the way to judge is plain. It's not hard. How plain is it? It's as plain as the daylight from the dark night. That's reassuring, isn't it? He says it's easy, it's plain. And if I were teaching this chapter, I might pause and ask my class if they agree with Mormon. Is it easy to distinguish between things that are good and things that are bad? And that might be an interesting discussion. My opinion? I agree with Mormon. Some may disagree, but I don't think that it's really that hard. The world would have us believe that the difference between good and evil is nuanced, complicated, relative, a lot of gray areas. Perhaps it can become that way if we consistently stifle the Spirit. But Mormon assures us in verse 16 that the Spirit of Christ is given to every man that he may know good from evil. We have been blessed with an innate goodness detector in all of our hearts. In verse 18, he refers to it as a light that helps us to judge the light of Christ. Gospel Topics defines that the light of Christ is the divine energy, power, or influence that proceeds from God through Christ and gives light and life to all things. The light of Christ influences people for good and prepares them to receive the Holy Ghost. One manifestation of the light of Christ is what we call a conscience. Well, with that spirit, or light, or conscience, I judge. Is this good or evil? Then a third wonderful word to help us in our judgment that we can add to invite and entice. He tells us that things of God persuade us to do good and believe in Christ. Invite, entice, persuade. Such great words. There's no force. There's no heavy-handedness in them. So I ask myself, Does this movie I'm watching invite and entice and persuade me to do good, to love God and to believe in Christ? Does the music I'm listening to invite and entice and persuade me? Is this book of scripture I'm reading inviting and enticing and persuading me to do good and love God and believe in Christ? Does this environment that I'm in invite and entice and persuade me to do good? Yes, then it is of God and it is good, and it is true. All good things come from Christ. That's clearly stated in verses 22 and 24. In Christ there should come every good thing. So if you find something good in this world, you can know for certain that it has been inspired and influenced by Christ through the Spirit. So in this case here, in gaining a testimony of the Book of Mormon, I ask myself, does what I'm studying and learning in the Book of Mormon, invite and entice and persuade me to do good, to love God, and to believe in Christ? Yes? Then the Book of Mormon is of Christ. I know that with a perfect knowledge. It's true. I've used my judgment, and I have a testimony. At least I know that it's good, and therefore of Christ. And that is the beginning of testimony. Over time, and with more study and prayer and judgment, I can also come to know that it's true. The major difference, I believe, between the two formulas is that Moroni's places more of the responsibility for the answer on God and the Spirit. Mormon's way places a bit more of the responsibility for the witness on the individual, on us. 
No, I'm not saying that one way is better than the other. It's just two different ways. If one doesn't seem to be working for you, and if you've tried Moroni's way and feel like that manifestation of the Spirit has been delayed, then perhaps give Mormon's formula a chance. In a sense, God says, I've given you a mind, a conscience, the light of Christ. You can judge. You come to a conclusion about these words. How have they affected you positively? Do they make you a better person? Do the principles taught within lead to happiness? Do they testify and lead you to believe in Christ and love God? Then you know something, don't you? It's of me. And perhaps you'll find some success in trying that formula. I know of many individuals who have gained a testimony in just that way. They study the Book of Mormon, and as they do, and as they apply what it teaches, they gain a testimony of its truthfulness by the change it makes in their life, how it makes them a better person, how the principles taught within it ring true in their spirits, how their lives are improved by living the truths that are taught by it. Mormon's formula gives just as powerful a witness as Moroni's. And, and you know, in truth, this really isn't a Moroni versus Mormon kind of thing. I hope I'm not playing that up too much. We can very easily combine both formulas. Perhaps the pondering that Moroni speaks about in chapter 10, verse 3, is referring to this process of judging as good. Moroni himself also taught this formula of his father's back in Ether chapter 4. In fact, he says it a little more succinctly. Take a look at verses 11 through 12. But he that believeth these things which I have spoken, him will I visit with the manifestations of my spirit, and he shall know and bear record. For because of my spirit, he shall know that these things are true. For it persuadeth men to do good. And whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do good is of For good cometh of none, save it be of me. I am the same that leadeth men to all good. So once again, we know that it's true because it persuades us to do good and to believe in Christ. And once we know that it's good, we have a responsibility to bear record of it. Well, there's another key element in the first step of this formula. I have this innate, God-given gift of judgment. But then what do I do with it? See if you can find the key phrase in verse 19. I search diligently for those good and true things with my judgment, with that light of Christ. That phrase suggests effort. I proactively seek for good things. I don't want to be passive. Part of the purpose of our lives here in mortality, and may I suggest part of the joy of it, is in diligently seeking for the good things of life. Speaking of collections here, that idea fits nicely. Not only am I collecting qualities, but I'm also collecting good and true things. In coin collecting, there's such a thing as counterfeit coins. I don't want counterfeit coins in my collection. I want the real thing. So I use my judgment. Satan is in the business of producing spiritual counterfeits. He tries to pass off evil things as good. The world may say, this is a great movie or television show. We'll give it all the awards. This is a great book. It's very influential. This is great art. It challenges us. Sometimes, though, there is evil in these things. They're just counterfeits. 
I'm going to need to use my judgment to determine whether it's good and true or evil and false. There will be indicators that will show whether it's real or fake, like somebody trying to determine a counterfeit coin. I decide if it invites, entices, and persuades me to do good and believe in Christ, or if it invites and entices and persuades me to do evil. And then I just spend my life collecting good and true things. Personally, I find goodness and truth in outdoor activities. When I'm in the beautiful creations of my Father in heaven, it persuades me to love God and believe in Him. I find it in great art, music, and literature. I find it in scripture, in culture, in history. I find it in science and biology as I come to a better understanding of the mechanical workings of my Heavenly Father's universe. There is so much truth and goodness out there for us to discover and enjoy in mortality. There's also a lot of garbage. God desires that we spend a lifetime searching for the good diligently, like a collector trying to complete their collection. As the latter end of the 13th article of faith advises us, if there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. And I might add that we seek diligently after these things. Before we move on, another important idea about searching for that which is good comes in verse 24. We learn that there were diverse ways that he did manifest things unto the children of men which were good. Some of those ways discussed in this chapter include angels, prophets, and scripture. But there are other ways that truth and goodness can be revealed to us. There are diverse sources of good and true things. The Latter-day Church doesn't hold a monopoly on all goodness. I can apply my God-given judgment to all things that I encounter. Therefore, I can find goodness and truth in the art of Michelangelo and Cassatt and Van Gogh. I can find it in the writings of Shakespeare and Tolstoy and Alcott, in the poetry of Wordsworth and Dickinson and Angelou. I can find it in the music of Beethoven and Rachmaninoff and in African-American spirituals. I can find it in movies and architecture and sculpture. I can find it in the writings and wisdom of the world's great religions. You'll find truth and goodness taught in the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, the Dhammapada, and the writings of C.S. Lewis. Of course, you'll also find the bad and false in many of these areas as well. Not all literature and art and movies and world scripture is good and true. How would we know the difference? As stated before, the light of Christ is there to help us. A really good place to see this dynamic is in a very short section of the Doctrine and Covenants, section 91, where Joseph Smith, during his inspired translation of the Bible, came to what is called the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha is a collection of scriptural books that were not included in the canon of biblical scripture, but accepted as possibly legitimate religious writings. Catholic Bibles normally include the Apocrypha, while many Protestant ones don't. Well, Joseph wondered if there was truth in those books. Should he even translate them? And I think we can apply the answer that he got regarding the Apocrypha to all that we encounter. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you concerning the Apocrypha, there are many things contained therein 
that are true, and it is mostly translated correctly. But <laughs> there are many things contained therein that are not true, which are interpolations by the hands of men. That's probably a good description of much of what we find in this world, in art, literature, movies, etc. Some things that are good and true, and others that aren't. How should we approach these kinds of things? Only stick to scripture and prophetic writings and completely ignore the rest of what God's children have produced in this world? No. Therefore, whoso readeth it, let him understand. For the Spirit manifesteth truth. And whoso is enlightened by the Spirit shall obtain benefit therefrom. So I take that Spirit and I apply it to all that I encounter to find that which is true and that which is not. I judge with the plainness that the Spirit offers me and I can find benefit therefrom. I can read the Bhagavad Gita and identify that which is true and that which is not, which is an interpolation by the hands of men. I can study and learn in a science or history class and identify that which is true and that which is an interpolation by the hands of men. I can watch a movie and be inspired by it and learn from it and also identify that which is contrary to what I believe or judge that it is inappropriate for my spirit and turn it off. God has shown us the way to judge and assured us that it is plain, as plain as night and day. So what does a peaceable follower of Christ do? They search diligently for that which is good and true by judging all things in the light of Christ. Next, verses 19 through 25 and verse 28. We're not done with our formula yet here. At this point, we've gained a testimony, so to speak. We've used our judgment to discover something that is good or true. Whether that's through Moroni's way or Mormon's way, or more than likely, a combination of both. But that's not enough. Knowledge is only the beginning. I must do some additional things after I've obtained that knowledge. Back to verse 19. What do I do once I've found those good things in my diligent search? I must lay hold upon them. I draw them to myself, embrace them, and make them an integral part of my life. Discovering truth and laying hold upon it are two very different things. Somebody may come to the conclusion that the Book of Mormon is good, but then do nothing to act on the truths and principles it teaches. If searching diligently with our judgment is the no part of the equation, laying hold is the do portion. And this is key because Mormon repeats this idea three more times in verse 20, 21, and 25. And then we have one more phrase to add to our formula, and we find it in verse 28. Once I've judged and searched and I've laid hold on those good things, then my faith will lead me to do something more. What is it? I will cleave to those good things. Laying hold on something isn't enough. Just as there were people who initially laid hold on the iron rod, who still ended up leaving it because that's all they did, it wasn't enough. After I lay hold on a good thing, I then tighten my grip and continually hold fast to them. The word cleave, in a scriptural sense, means to adhere strongly to, stick fast to, or hold to. 
It's also used in Scripture to describe the relationship between a husband and wife. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. We too must become one with truth and goodness, so that it integrates into our very nature and character. If searching is the no, and laying hold upon is the do, then cleaving is the be. We become truth and goodness, and it reflects in everything that we believe, that we say, that we do, and that we are. So the peaceable follower of Christ lays hold upon and cleaves to every good thing. Now right here, I might break for just a minute to really let what we've learned here sink deep into our hearts. God has given us various ways of discovering and confirming truth in our hearts. He's blessed us with a powerful light and means of judging good and evil, truth and falsehood. I hope that we can make a consistent effort to ask ourselves whether what we see and hear and read really does invite and entice and persuade. I admit that it's much easier to just sit and passively consume whatever it is that the world has to offer. To just watch the movie, to just read the book, to just listen to the popular song, or just go with the flow of what most of the rest of the world is doing and believing. But consciously employing our gift of judgment requires concentrated effort. Like a collector, may we spend our entire lives searching diligently for truth and goodness. And when we found them, I pray that you and I will lay hold upon those things and cleave to them. Well, let's continue to fill in our Christian Qualities Collection. Verses 25 through 43. There's more that Mormon has to teach us here. There are two major principles discussed in this particular section. Those two principles are faith and hope. What is it that's going to help us to act on that which we know to be good? What is the power by which we're able to lay hold upon and cleave to every good thing? Now it's faith. Verse 25. And thus by faith they did lay hold upon every good thing. In verse 28, and they who have faith in him will cleave unto every good thing. And then there's much more about faith in here. Not only will it help me to lay hold upon and cleave to good things, but it will do some other things for us as well. Verse 26, whatsoever thing I ask in faith, believing that I shall receive it, will be done unto me. Verse 33, if you will have faith in me, ye shall have power to do whatsoever thing is expedient in me. 34. If I have faith in him, I may be saved. And 37, I may work miracles. Then faith's sister principle, hope. What specifically can we have faith and hope in? And what is it that ye shall hope for? Behold, I say unto you that ye shall have hope through the atonement of Christ and the power of his resurrection to be raised unto life eternal and this because of your faith in him according to the promise. Wherefore, if a man have faith, he must needs have hope. For without faith, there cannot be any hope. Well, we will have faith in Christ and hope through his atonement and resurrection. 
Now, since we really dug deep into those two principles a few weeks ago in Ether 12, I'm just going to leave it at that. It was there that we talked about hope and faith in a better celestial world, a better terrestrial world, and a better us as individuals. And I think that each of those ideas are reflected in these verses here. So remember that the peaceable follower of Christ has faith and hope in the atonement and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now a little bit of an overlap here with the last section, verses 39 through 44. This portion of Moroni 7 sounds very similar to what Paul taught us in the masterpiece known as 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's there that he lauded the three great Christian virtues of faith, hope, and charity. But Mormon seems to add a fourth one for us here, a prequel, a prerequisite virtue, something that leads to faith, hope, and charity. Let's see if you can find it. It's in verse 39, verse 43, verse 44. And then you can also see it in chapter 8, verse 26. What's the virtue? Meekness and lowliness of heart. Or we might say humility. Meekness and humility are the only type of soil that faith, hope, and charity can grow in. As he says in verse 43, he cannot have faith and hope, save he shall be meek and lowly of heart. So if I wish to be a peaceable follower of Christ, I must first be humble enough to recognize my need for Christ and his gospel. I've got to crush the pride of the natural man that tells me that I don't need any help or wisdom or commandments or church. It's reminiscent of Alma 32, where before he taught the people how to gain faith or to know the truth, that they needed to be humble first. And he teaches the humble people those truths. Like C.S. Lewis said, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So the peaceable follower of Christ is meek and lowly of heart, or humble. Verses 44 through 48, the crowning virtue of them all. This is the big one because it embodies and embraces all of the others. What is the greatest Christian virtue? Paul said that the greatest of all is this. It's charity. According to both Paul and Mormon, if I have not charity, I'm nothing. Wherefore, I must needs have charity. Paul taught that even if I can speak with the tongue of angels, or prophesy, or have great faith, or give everything I have to the poor, if I don't have charity, all of that means nothing. Well, if it's that important, I'd better make sure that I know what charity is. Mormon's going to teach us in the next three verses. And granted, it's a quality that's a little hard to define. So he'll start by telling us what charity does, and then he'll tell us what it is. And charity suffereth long, and is kind, and envieth not, and is not puffed up, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, and rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Now there's an entire sermon that could be taught for each one of those phrases. We're not going to do that here. 
but I'd invite you to ponder what each of those qualities looks like and ask why they're important. And I want you to notice something about that list. Is it a list of feelings or actions? They're actions, right? That's important to keep in mind. Well, let's come back to that in a second. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, if ye have not charity, ye are nothing. For charity never faileth. Wherefore, cleave unto charity, which is the greatest of all. For all things must fail. But charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever. And whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. So what is charity? It's the pure love of Christ. What does that mean, the pure love of Christ? I think the meaning hinges on that tiny two-letter word, of. You could interpret that in at least three different ways. One way to look at it is that charity is the type of love that Jesus had for others. The pure love of Christ. We need to have that same kind of love for others. So, it's love like Christ. But you could interpret it in another way as well. It's the love that we have for Jesus, our love for Christ. And if we have that love, it will cause us and motivate us to act in certain ways. And finally, it could also be interpreted as the love that he has for us, the pure love of Christ. Recognizing his love for us will change us, our attitudes and behaviors, and we will act in certain ways because of that love that we feel he has for us. So it could also be love from Christ. Regardless of how you interpret it, we know that we absolutely must have this pure love of Christ or we are nothing. If my actions are motivated by anything other than this pure love, then they're meaningless. If everything I do is self-serving and it's all about me or how people view me, then those actions are not going to have any power. If I teach without that love, my teaching will lack power. If I serve without that love, my service will lack power. If I lead without that love, my leadership will lack power. We've got to develop the quality of charity. Now back to our list of actions in verse 45. I think that often when we say the word love, we think of feelings. I need to feel a certain way about the people around me. But charity is a matter of the will and character and action, and not so much about feelings. If I have charity, I will do certain things. I'll be patient. I'll be kind to other people. I won't be envious, prideful, selfish, or contentious. I'll have pure thoughts and rejoice in good things. I'll endure to the end in every meaning of that phrase. That's a big list and a lot to take in. But allow me to simplify this a little for you. Do you want an easy way to determine how you should act and be? Is there some example of what all these qualities look like? Yes. The perfect example for each of these qualities is Jesus Christ himself. That's what Mormon is describing here. Or rather, who he's describing. He's describing the character of Christ. This verse is a description of the pure love of Christ. And in that light, you could read that verse this way. 
And Christ suffered long, and was kind, and envied not, and was not puffed up. Christ sought not his own. He was not easily provoked. He thought no evil, and rejoiced not in iniquity, but rejoiced in the truth. Christ bore all things, he believed all things, he hoped all things. Christ endured all things. See how that changes it just a little bit? Therefore, when Mormon asks us to have charity, he's really asking us to seek to be like Christ. If you wish to have charity, then all you really need to do is follow the example of Jesus Christ and strive to become like him. It would take far too long to do this here, but an insightful activity would be to take each one of those phrases and think of ways that Christ demonstrated that quality. Can you think of examples from the scriptures when he was kind, when he sought not his own, when he was not easily provoked, a time when he endured all things? I'm sure that you could. And with that understanding of the gift of charity, I think it should come as no surprise that Mormon tells us that charity never faileth. I think we often interpret that to mean that charity always works or that it is always going to be successful. I'm not sure that's what it means. Yes, I believe that approaching any situation with charity is going to yield something better than it would otherwise. In that way, charity never faileth. But Christ was the embodiment of charity, and they crucified him. A parent may have all those qualities and love for a child, but that won't always change a heart. It doesn't guarantee success, and I think that's important to understand. If I feel that charity is always going to be successful, and I fail, then the only conclusion that I can come to is that I must not have had enough charity, and that could be quite discouraging. But instead of meaning that it's always successful, what if it means that charity is always necessary? It's always going to be needed in mortality and throughout the eternities. That's why he says in the next verse that it endureth forever. In Moroni 8.17, he gives another definition of charity. He says it is everlasting love. Charity is a different kind of virtue. And you know, I'll be honest with you in saying that I'm not completely sure that I understand what he means exactly by all things must fail, but charity endureth forever. But perhaps it means that there are other virtues or gifts of the Spirit that will not be needed in the next life. I mean, when we're standing in the very presence of God and the Savior, I imagine that faith and hope take on a different meaning. It's no longer hoping for something that I can't see, when I can see it right in front of me. I no longer need to hope for resurrection and exaltation when those blessings have been granted. There won't really be any need for certain manifestations of the gift of tongues or the gift of healing or the gift of miracles when I'm living in a glorified eternal world, at least not in the same sense that they're used here. Could that be what that means? Charity, on the other hand, really does endure forever. If it's the character of Christ we're talking about, then possessing that pure love for God and my fellow man is always going to be needed because it will be who I am and what I have become in mortality. Verse 48 appears to support that interpretation. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, 
Pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart, that ye may be filled with this love, which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ. That ye may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope, that we may be purified even as he is pure. Amen. Developing charity is the act of becoming like Christ. Therefore, whoso is found possessed of that quality at the last day, it shall be well with him. They will see that they are like him. After spending their entire lives striving to be kind as he was kind, to suffer long as he suffered long, to rejoice in the truth as he rejoiced in the truth, and so on. If we've developed those qualities in this life, then we will be blessed with another one of his qualities. We'll find that we become pure even as he is pure. Charity never faileth, and if we don't have it, we're nothing. Therefore, the final and crowning Christian quality in this collection is charity itself. The peaceable followers of Christ have charity. Well, that's quite the collection, isn't it? What a display. I hope that we can waste and wear out our lives in searching diligently, but not for coins or baseball cards or stamps, but for virtues, for character, for charity. That's a collection worth any effort and any sacrifice. The way that I felt when I completed that booklet of pennies when I was a kid will pale in comparison to the way that I'll feel when Christ helps me to push in that final quality, to fill in that last gap, if I ever do, God willing. May there be no gaps or counterfeits in our collections when we stand before God to be judged. Hopefully, God will see the imprint of his Son in our countenances, that our collection will mirror and reflect Christ's perfectly. And to liken the scriptures here, after that discussion, it may be helpful to give your students some time to reflect personally on the state of their own Christian collection. I've put together a handout that asks a question based on each of the qualities that we've just discussed, and then gives them some possible applications to each question. This certainly isn't the kind of activity that they fill out and turn in. It should be self-reflective and personal. I won't read through the entire handout, but let me just read one question so you can get a feel of of how it goes. So the first question is, do I walk peaceably with the children of men? And they could choose, I am frequently angry and frustrated with the people around me. I find myself in contention with many. I'm sarcastic, judgmental, and I love a good argument. Or, I strive to be kind to those around me, but often fail. It's easy to get wrapped up in my own little world and ignore others and their needs. Or, people tend to feel better after being around me. I seek to lift them up and guide them through their challenges. I encourage others to live the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I look for opportunities to share it with all I can. Then, each question has an other option for them to write in something of their own thinking. Now, you could go through the rest of that on your own, but I found that this can be a meaningful pondering experience for your students. 
Well, I hope you don't feel gypped here, but I'm not going to do much with chapters 8 and 9. These two chapters are taken from letters that Mormon wrote to Moroni during his ministry. The major focus of chapter 8 is on infant baptism, and Mormon really hammers that idea. It apparently was an issue amongst the Nephites, and he must have known that it would be an issue in the last days. I personally don't feel that I have any great insights to offer you on this matter. I would say that the major principles I draw from this chapter are that God is a God of order, and his ordinances must be performed correctly. That's why the sacrament prayers must be repeated word for word. That's why a baptism must be done over again if even a small part of the body isn't completely immersed in the water. And that's why we have recorders and witnesses and certificates. Ordinances are important and must be done correctly. Also, another truth, little children are innocent, and God will not condemn anyone that has not reached a state of accountability. That's just, and it's fair. Moroni 9 is a bit of a darker chapter. Uh, Mormon goes into detail about the depravity of the people and how far they've fallen. I believe we took a look at a few verses of this chapter uh, back with my first video in Mormon regarding the wickedness of Mormon's world. Most of chapter 9 is an extension of the fullness of iniquity theme. The Nephites and the Lamanites have become a depraved, brutal, and bloodthirsty people, and Mormon really has no hope for them to change at this point. However, look at the beginning of verse 4. What does Mormon do under these circumstances? He says, Behold, I am laboring with them continually. And then verse 6, And now, my beloved son, notwithstanding their hardness, let us labor diligently. For if we should cease to labor, we should be brought under condemnation. For we have a labor to perform whilst in this tabernacle of clay, that we may conquer the enemy of all righteousness and rest our souls in the kingdom of God. Regardless of their wickedness and refusal to repent, Mormon still continues to teach and labor with his people. We could fit this into the theme of living righteously in a wicked world. What must we do when the world around us is descending into grosser and grosser wickedness? When they've fallen beyond our ability to help them? We must continue laboring and teaching and trying to conquer Satan and his works, even when there's no hope in changing the world around us. For our sakes, for our souls. Reminds me of this little story written by Ellie Weissel about a righteous man who goes to Sodom and Gomorrah to preach repentance to the people. It goes like this. One of the just men came to Sodom, determined to save its inhabitants from sin and punishment. Night and day he walked the streets and markets, protesting against greed and theft, falsehood and indifference. In the beginning, people listened and smiled ironically. Then they stopped listening. He no longer even amused them. The killers went on killing, the wise kept silent, as if there were no just man in their midst. One day a child, moved by compassion for the unfortunate teacher, approached him with these words, Poor stranger, you shout, you scream. Don't you see that it's hopeless? Yes, I see, answered the just man. Then why do you go on? I'll tell you why. In the beginning, I thought I could change man. Today I know I cannot. If I still shout today, if I still scream, it is to prevent man from ultimately changing me. And maybe that's part of the reason Mormon continued to teach even when he knew they wouldn't listen or change. 
when the world ignores us, when they reject our pleas for change, when they refuse to listen to God's wisdom, we should not cease to labor diligently. We should not cease to preach. For if we do, they may succeed in changing us. And then one final thought. Mormon's last words in this chapter are very sweet. Mormon had a life of ugliness, violence, war, and abomination. But there was one bright ray of light in his life, his son Moroni. And I'm sure he found great joy and satisfaction in the one soul that he did influence for good. Behold, my son, I cannot recommend them unto God, lest he should smite me. But behold, my son, I recommend thee unto God. And I trust in Christ that thou wilt be saved. My son, be faithful in Christ. And may not the things which I have written grieve thee, to weigh thee down unto death. But may Christ lift thee up, and may his sufferings and death, and the showing his body unto our fathers, and his mercy and long suffering, and the hope of his glory and of eternal life, rest in your mind forever. And may the grace of God the Father, whose throne is high in the heavens, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who sitteth on the right hand of his power, until all things shall become subject unto him, be and abide with you forever. Amen. And this is my prayer for all of you as well. We may not be able to change the world through our influence, but even if we can only change one, it will be worth it. And that's all I have for you this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with somebody that you feel it could help. Thank you so much for watching. And as always, get out there and teach with power.